Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Sam Cass, former senior policy advisor for nutrition in the Obama administration, executive director of Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, and the Obama family chef. With two jobs in the White House, work on food and nutrition policy, and cook dinner each night for the first family, Sam helped to launch the biggest public health campaign to ever come out of the White House. Today, Sam is a partner in Acre Venture Partners, investing in the future of food with a focus around climate change. In this episode, we chat about how Sam's desire to travel and see the world led him to Vienna, where he learned to cook in a Michelin-starred restaurant and found his inspiration to learn more about food and policy. Ultimately, this landed him in the White House, and Sam shares some of his most proud moments there, starting with the Edible Garden, which was the catalyst for change, as well as the campaign around school nutrition. Sam talks about solutions for making healthy food more accessible, the problems with our current food system as it relates to our climate crisis, and how we can take action at home to help like reducing our meat consumption and food waste. It's hard to believe we throw away 40% of the food produced in this country. This was such an inspiring conversation on passion, purpose, and change. Keep listening to learn more. I know a lot of you out there love a great nut butter, which is why I'm so excited to share with you my all-time favorite, Nutso, the original mixed nut and seed butter brand, delivering amazingly delicious blends of nuts and seeds in every jar. Nutso is a women-led business driven by the passion of founder and CEO Danielle Lavolsi, who in the process of solving a personal nutritional problem created a whole new product category. Danielle was actually our very first podcast guest, so if you want to hear all the details of her story, head to the very first episode. Nutso's products are a total upgrade to regular mono butters, mixing in nutrient-dense nuts and seeds like Brazil nuts, almonds, chia, and flax, and not adding any sugar, thank God, so the products taste amazing. I love having it by the spoonful, or of course, putting a dollop on top of my purely oatmeal in the morning for some good fats and protein. I also love that Nutso isn't just about making great food products, they are equally passionate about their nonprofit, Project Left Behind, and its mission to provide food, shelter, and vital resources for underprivileged children. So I highly suggest you stock up on your new favorite nut butter, and you will definitely thank me later. Nutso's products are non-GMO project verified, gluten-free, palm oil-free, soy-free, refined sugar-free, and some varieties peanut-free, tree nut-free, and organic. You can find Nutso in retailers nationwide like Costco, Walmart, Kroger, Whole Foods, as well as Sprouts and Irwan, and online at Amazon, Thrive, and Nutso.com, where you can get 30% off your order with code NUTSOPE at checkout. That's N-U-T-T-Z-O-P-E at checkout on Nutso.com for 30% off. Enjoy! Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It is so much fun to see you, and... I'm so thankful to have gotten to know you this past year. I know I'm I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, it's been it's been a great pleasure. So you have such a great story, and I want to begin with that journey that got you into food. I know you weren't always into food. You were a baseball player at some point. You're from Chicago. <laughs> so where did food begin in your life? 
That's a good question. I mean, I don't have one of those. My Italian grandmother taught me how to make gnocchi when I was three stories. <laughs> you know, I come from a very, I think, typical 1980s family that I think the one thing that was meaningful was that we always ate dinner together as a family and without TV and we cooked every night and almost never went out. So that's, I think that was a good bedrock of just a good habit or relationship with food. But it was like a broiled steak and boiled potatoes and like iceberg lettuce salad. It was like nothing fancy at all. But I always sort of loved food. And my my two best friends and I, when we were way younger than we should have been doing this, like 13, 14, the birthday present we'd asked from our parents were to allow us to take the birthday kid out for their birthday. So the three of us would go to like a fancy So sophisticated. Yeah, and we walked in there like, we would go to the same restaurant, Shaw's Crab House, and my, my, my child best friends, Malik and Damon, and we walk in there like we own the place. You know, we thought we were, you know, we were like, thought we were such hot stuff. And, uh, but it was like, we just had so much fun. And that was, that's what we all got for our birthdays from our families was to do that. So it was super fun. That. And I, and I knew that I wanted to learn how to cook for my family one day, that, that it's just like knowing how to cook was a good skill to have. And that I, one day I sort of always thought I'd go to culinary school when I was much older. And that's sort of what ended up sort of setting me on the path. But, but yeah, I, it was just, uh, it was nothing unique about my sort of culinary childhood that would preordain me to have a life in food by any stretch of the imagination. So then you go to school, you think you're going maybe the baseball route, and then how do you ultimately yep. end up cooking yep. and going from there? So I went to junior college trying to make it to the major leagues. And, How's your baseball um, game today? Oh my God, I haven't played in so long, I don't even know. It's, no, it's terrible. I know it's terrible. How bad? Who knows the depths of how bad I am? I mean, I could barely run to first base right now. <laughs> my whole entirety. And, you know, and I was good, uh, but I wasn't good enough. And so it was sort of, you know, I went to a, a, a college that was just like a baseball factory. You only went there. It was a two-year school. You just went there to try to get drafted. And so, you know, I got that. You know, I was as good as most of those guys, but I wasn't the best. And you have to be the best at every level if you want to make it. And so I slowly came to terms with that. And then ended up transferring to the University of Chicago, which was a very different experience than a uh, community college in Kansas City. And I played there, but got a got a real education. So in the summer of my final year at UFC, my friend's boyfriend uh, was a sous chef at a restaurant in Chicago. And I said, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'd love to learn how to cook one day. I'll go to culinary school one day. He's like, why would you? Why would you do that? And he said, you're going to spend forty grand a year to. Then, you know, I would just come to the restaurant. I was like, all right. So I started coming, showing up and I kind of showed up for a couple of weeks. And finally the chef was like, well, you're going to keep showing up. I guess I got to pay you. <laughs> and, uh, and so he hired me for the summer and it was an unmitigated disaster. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing and they kind of threw me in the deep end. I, I like, it was an Italian American restaurant. Uh, the chef's name, Dean Zanella, wonderful, wonderful man. Still open and the restaurant? Yep. Yep. 312 Chicago. And, you know, they kind of threw me in the deep end. And I mean, it was a, are we allowed to swear on this? Podcast? Yeah, go for it. There's, there's only one way to describe it as an utter shit show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I got my butt kicked and humbled in a pretty serious way. So 
throwing me on the pasta station. Like, what? Well, I had no business on the pasta station. I like, I could barely peel a potato. But you know, it's how I learned, and so I got the kind of bug there. And then my last semester of UFC, I had like one odd semester left because I got a few credits somehow transferred from junior college to UFC, which they shouldn't have, by the way. <laughs> and so I had one semester left, and so I went. I kind of applied to. I just wanted to go out and see the world, and travel was sort of my main desire at the time. And so I applied to the three abroad programs they had, which was Mumbai, Rome, and Vienna. And I got waitlisted. And so I kind of had to kick my way in, but I sort of made a very strong plea to the head of the program that he just needed to send me anywhere. I didn't care where I went. I got to go to uh, Vienna. And so there is where I learned how to cook. So the, I said to the, to the head of the program, I'm interested in food. Do you know of anybody that maybe I can get into a pastry shop or something one day, once a week or something just to learn? And she said, she said all right, let me check. So I get the third day I got there. She's like, all right, so I have, I found somebody. So my husband's uncle's friend from college son rides bicycles with the sous chef oh at God. the best restaurant in Vienna. That's literally what it was. And, and she was like, so if you want to meet him, he'll meet you tomorrow at three o'clock. So that was my third day in Vienna. So I went to meet him and he was sort of standing like I'm on the street corner and there's this like crazy dude across the street in this, this crazy expensive racing bike, bicycle, full racing bicycle gear, black bandana, big Prada sunglasses, homemade brandings all over his arms. And I'm like sitting there like, oh my God, that guy looks insane. Uh, you know, just some, some like waiting for some cook to show up. And then he walks up to me. He's like, are you the Yankee who wants to cook? And I'm like, oh shit. And I was like, yes. And he's like, well, come tomorrow at three. He ended up being, his name's Alois, like the best chef to this day I ever worked with. And they took me in like family and, and started training me. Wow. So when you got there, had you at this point like honed your skills in Chicago or you were still a total novice and total novice? I worked three months in this, you know, kind of Italian American restaurant that was nice, but not, not super fancy or anything. So I didn't know anything. And this is a Michelin star, Michelin star, super high level kitchen. And so I walked in the first day. And it's just, I'll never forget this, the energy and the noise, the rhythm of all the noises, everybody pots and pans and mixing. And you can just, it felt sort of like, it was both felt like super chaotic and also like a symphony. There was some like me method to all the madness and the rhythm of the kitchen. And so I like helped out on the little like appetizer station, the muse station. And at the end of the, you know, but we were having fun and they were giving me stuff and the taste and it was, we were having a good time. And at the end of the night, the chef, so the sous chef was the, the biker guy. The, the head chef was the, uh, a man named Christian Domschitz. Huge, like 6'2 or 6'3, big dude, but sweet and like just a gentle guy, I guess, until he wasn't. But generally speaking, <laughs> a gentle dude. And uh, he was like, Yankee, come over here. So he, they called me Yankee and he, 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 from like day one. And he put um, a scallop, a big scallop on a very thin little pastry spatula, like pastry knife they call it, but it's like a, basically a very thin little spatula. And he said, take the uh, scallop to that guy on the other side of the room. And I was like, what is going on here? But I didn't even know what was happening. So I was like, okay. So I take the scallop and I walk it across this raw scallop. And this guy working on this other station was like, why the hell are you bringing me this raw scallop on a spatula? <laughs> and I gave it to him and the chef said, okay, you can come back anytime you want. 
I was like, what? And it turned out he was testing whether I had a steady hand. Oh, wow. And once I showed that, like, I didn't get nervous and my hand didn't shake, his face was like, as long as your hand doesn't shake, I can teach you anything. And so I started coming back in. I would come in for breakfast, work the breakfast and lunch, work lunch, but come in the morning. And then I'd go finish my degree because I was there when they brought up working from two to four. And then I'd go meet them because they would have a coffee break or a wine break, depending on the day. <laughs> and then we'd go, then we'd go do dinner service and then, then go drinking and having a good time afterwards every night. So I didn't sleep very much in those early months. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like you certainly had no fear and just kind of dove in head first. Were you always yeah. like that? It seems like that's definitely part of your personality. Yeah, I can't say I'm a fear-driven kind of person. I think it was really mostly motivated by just a deep curiosity and wanting to be out in the world and experience new places and new people and new food and just really travel was the thing that I wanted most. And it was, you know, it's always better if you can build some relationships in a place because you get to actually experience it truly. And mm-hmm. and food has just become became a really powerful way. And it's really the and really the initial at that time thing that drove me was that, you know, food was just a great tour guide of the world. And it could take you to all these interesting places into people's homes and far off flung places, which it absolutely ended up doing. And so that was my main motivation at the time. Yeah, I never was, because of baseball, I think really, you know, shy away from hard work and you learn how to deal with failure. But I will say those, so I, I was there for three and a half months in that first stint through through Christmas. And at that time, on the, the, the main guy, the saucier who did all the sauces, meats and fish got sick. And so he had to have some, some kind of surgery. And so the chef had to work that station and he was like, he was kind of older. He was sort of done working a station. He hadn't worked the station in years. So he pulled me into that to because he was like, I don't want to do any prep. So I'm going to teach you how to do everything so I don't have to do it. So it was this incredible learning experience, right? Because he was a highly motivated teacher. Yeah. So he didn't have to do the work. So they taught me. So I had this crazy experience in those first three months. And then and then I had to go back home because my, my visa was out. And I was trying to get a worker's permit. And like, I couldn't do it. So I ended up just going back. So I ended up staying there about a year illegally. <laughs> it's got interesting at the end. It got That's interesting like a, when the a different good story. <laughs> yeah, when the authorities came for me, you know, it ended abrupt. It all ended abruptly, but that was fine. But but you know, I will say in those when I came back in those early couple months, they were like, "All right, we're going to make you a you sure you came back. We told you don't come back unless you're serious." And so they just kicked my ass, and they just beat my they just beat me every night, and every night something went wrong. For like the first three months or four months, it was just a disaster. I was so tired. I worked so hard and every night something went wrong. And that is definitely the closest I've ever been to quitting. Like I will never forget walking home at like four in the morning, completely spent and sit. I just sat down in the street and was like, I I don't know. I don't think I can do this. Like, I think, I think I need to, I think. And it was right at that moment that like, things started to get better. I started to get the hang of it. I stopped like burning things, you know, or forgetting things, or, you know, all the, all of the things. And so, you know, that, that definitely, that definitely taught me a lot. I imagine that a Michelin star restaurant in Vienna probably wasn't using the healthiest ingredients. Maybe they were, maybe not, but how did you really then pivot from being in this environment Mm -hmm to Mm -hmm. becoming so passionate about nutrition, health, 
Yeah, it actually was a very specific moment in my training in Vienna, actually. So the, the ingredients that they used were amazing. And, you know, Europe has been ahead of the curve, certainly from us on organic Farm farming. Farm table. And, and, yeah, and all that stuff, right? I mean, it's just kind of how they do it. And so that was there. But the focus, like we all would always eat, the sous chef and I would always eat really health, like he'd make big salad. We'd make things that were good, that were healthy. But that wasn't a design of the menu in any way, shape, or form. Not that it was necessarily like really unhealthy, but we weren't considering health. And so there was this, there was a very specific moment. I mean, it, it completely changed the trajectory of my, of my life and my career, where he asked me to make a rhubarb sauce for this foie gras dish. And he said, okay, Yankee, this is how it goes. Cook the rhubarb down. I'm just going to, I'm going to keep it how he said it. He said, Yankee, cook the rhubarb down and then fuck in the butter. <laughs> think about like a nice Austrian accent with that. And I said, okay. So like I cook it down and I like put in a ton of butter. He said, no, no, no. I said, I said, fuck in the butter. I was like, wow, that's a lot of butter. So I took another giant scoop and threw it in. And he, he came with me, got right in my face. and was like, I said, fuck in the butter. And he like took a huge thing of butter and threw it in there. And he looked me dead in my eyes and said, if the guest walks out of this restaurant and drops dead a heart attack, it's not my problem. The guests asked us to make food that tastes good, not that that's good for them. Wow. And he walked away. And I'm just so like, got totally dressed down in front of everybody. I'm sitting there just like rocked. But I, I go back to my station and I'm just, and I look, you can see out into the dining room. And, you know, there's like a kind of a semi-open kitchen. And I look, looked out there and I was just like, God, everybody looks terrible. <laughs> like they look sick. They look overweight. They look unhealthy. And that's not right. Now, the, the problem was, was that he was 100% right. That as eaters, we had not been demanding of the food system mm -hmm. to feed us healthier food. We had been demanding that they feed us delicious food, food that was convenient, food that was cheap. But we had not at that point, I mean, this was almost 20 years ago now, we had not been asking the food system, both packaged companies and restaurants and chefs, to make food that was good for us. And it just rocked my world. So I'm sitting there starting to like question everything. What are we doing here? What are the implications of what I'm putting on the plate on the well-being of the people who are eating it? And then right when that, so I'm like churning, right? And then the purveyor of all the poultry, like the ducks, chicken and egg guy came in and he was off on my left. So the kitchen was on my right and on my left was kind of where they all came in and dropped their stuff. And he came and dropped this huge stack of, of product and I was like, wow, I wonder what the implication of what I'm putting on my plate has on the impact on the land and the environment and the farmers. And, and once I asked those two fundamental questions, it was like, I just went on a whole different path. Like I put down all the cookbook. Yeah, at that point, I'm just reading any cookbook I could get just to learn and try to study. Every night I go home. What I was the cookbook, cookbook that you were reading or like one of your favorites at that time? At that point, I was reading the French Laundry cookbook that had just come out. And so I was studying that because there was there's a lot of similarities to Keller's style versus their style. And they were very excited that to see Keller's style. And so I, I remember reading a lot about that. But there was like big, thick, like just how do you do all these technique books that I was reading. And and I just stopped reading all those. And I started picking up obscure like history of agriculture books and food policy and taxation books and anything I get my hands on. I'm going to sound like, you know, like I'm an old dad now, which I guess I am. But like, we didn't have, kin we didn't have Kindle back then. So no, we didn't even like know, buy phones. Or phones. Right. Yeah, yeah, phones. So it was like, I was like lugging books around everywhere I went. 
had a giant bag of books. And I just started, you know, realizing that food is at the center of so many of the issues that we're facing. And there's one of the root causes of a lot of the symptoms that we treat in, in, in ways that are highly ineffective. And so once I, I did that, I started to, I couldn't, I, I never left that, that trajectory. It's all about that butter. All about the butter. And I love butter. I use plenty of butter, but you know, <laughs> not quite that much. Well, it set you on an amazing path then to really find, it sounds like what you're passionate about. So yeah. you come back to the U.S., you end up several steps later, yep. you land in the White House. Yes, <laughs> that is what happened. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the most proud initiatives that you had, because it was really amazing what what you experienced. Yeah, yeah. so we, we came to the White House knowing, yeah. so I cooked for them for two years in Chicago during the campaign which was an amazing, very intense time, of course. And, and I assume at the time, like when you first started, you didn't imagine that it was just going to be like, okay, we ended up in the White House. So nobody, it would, it, it, now obviously that he won, like sort of take it together. But like back then you couldn't possibly believe he was going to win when he first announced. Although the minute the minute it became clear that I was going to go even try out, do a test, like I kind of had this instinct of like everything was going to change, mm -hmm. but not because I thought he was necessarily going to win. It wasn't even that like, like intellectual. It's just more of a feeling, but yeah, like she actually writes in her book about a conversation that her and I had basically being like, there's just no way this dude's going to win. I think Barack Hussein Obama, he's got big ears. Like this, this isn't happening. <laughs> And uh, we laughed at ourselves because we had gotten very caught up in this. If we go to the White House, we can do this big garden. And if that goes well, then we'll do a big health initiative for kids and families. And like, we were like, got super excited about all the things we we're going to do. And we we're like, oh, what are we talking about? Here? This is never going to happen. <laughs> like, never going to happen. So I had to apologize that I ever doubted him. But he was 30 points down the polls. So in my defense, it's not yeah. like a ridiculous, <laughs> it's not like a ridiculous thought. But, you know, obviously he did it. And so we, we went with the intention of planting the garden and sort of using that to take the temperature of the country and and put a stake in the ground on the issue, this issue that she cared about and sort of see how the response was and assuming it went well, then we put together a big initiative and campaign on it. And so that was sort of my first task was to get the garden going. And now it seems totally normal that there's like eggplants and tomatoes and peppers on the South Lawn, but like, that was not a normal thing. And so when we went to go, when I went to go talk to the guy who ran the ground, like, okay, so first thing you really cared about this, she wants to plant a vegetable garden. Let's, we need to find a spot for it. He was like, great, with me, me down here tomorrow. It's like, I got, so I meet him down there on the South Lawn the next, the next day. He's like, got a perfect spot for you. And so he, ta he takes me down, he takes me down the thing. There's this tennis court, basketball court which is next to the swimming pool. And behind that is the, is the shed where they keep all the like the lawnmowers and tools and equipment shed. And behind that was this teeny little, like probably four by six little bed surrounded by a bunch <laughs> of trees. He was like, I think this would be perfect for you. You're and like, I was like, not I was exactly. like, I don't think you, I don't think you understand. I was like, why don't you come with me? And so I took him and I stood squarely in the center of the South Lawn. 
I was like, what about here? <laughs> and he was like, what? This is the most iconic image in the world. Like, no way. And so we compromised on a little off center down at the base, but it was very important for her and for me that the people who were coming, walking on the street could see uh, the garden and see us working in it. And so we, we, we compromised and uh, got 1,100 square feet to start. And then each year I kind of took a little more land. And I knew, I knew that this was going to be a big, you know, the kind of general attitude was like, all right, you go plant your garden, dude. Like, have yeah. fun down there. And I knew it was going to be a, a bigger thing than I think everybody else did, uh, just because I was closer to the space and to the community that cared about it. But even I was completely blown away with the, with the response. I mean, from around the world, we got in, she was on the cover of every newspaper around the world. Because there was something universal about the images of her with the kids when we planted, you know, feeding the next generation and nourishing them and growing food and, and expressing our culture and our identity. And it, it was incredible, the global response. And from there, we were like, okay, right issue, right time. Like, let's, let's go to work. Yeah. People are hungry for wanting more of this. And that was really yeah. just the beginning. I mean, totally. Oh, yeah. That's, so that was just, that's how it started. Yeah. So then we put together a big campaign around kids and family health, you know, which focused on school nutrition, access to healthy, affordable food, better marketing practices, early childhood development and physical activity. And, you know, there's like a long list of, of accomplishments that I'm super proud of, most of which, you know, we'll never get much credit for. I'd say probably if I had to step back and ask and answer, like, you know, as you asked, so what's the things that I I'm most proud of. I think that the thing that I set out to do, because when we got there, you know, health and food was like a obscure little issues. Like the av hardcore advocates were yelling at food companies kind of off to the side, but nobody was paying attention. And, you know, I realized that the thing that she could do that had the biggest impact would be to take these issues and put them in the center of our culture and really try to shift our cultural values and our cultural norms around health and well-being. And I think on that level, although it's very hard to measure per se, like, I think we were ex extremely successful. I think the world's just a very different place now because of her leadership and work on it. All these startups and entrepreneurs were, have been inspired and have space created by it. And, you know, so I think that was a big deal. Maybe I should ask you, like, what was it, what, what, how was it like for you as you watched her do her work as you were starting to build, build your company? I think it was really bringing it into the forefront of the conversation. Like for me, yeah. I probably felt like I was more on the fringe of this yeah. holistic nutrition world. And so we were talking right. about it over in these circles, but it definitely wasn't right. mainstream to hear that you are what you eat and how important childhood nutrition is. And that conversation yeah. was just so much more amplified. Yeah. 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 I think it created a lot of space for, businesses and people are trying to push us don't just take it for me now like the first lady of the right. united states is also reinforcing this message i think it that so many people say it just provided so much tailwinds for you know everybody you've been slogging it out trying to make it happen scrapping that just helped bring i think momentum to everybody's efforts on all kinds of different levels who've been working on these issues for a long time absolutely um, yeah so i think there's that i mean i think the obvious big one is transforming school nutrition and rewriting those laws how do that you think, was a huge how do you think we things stand today i mean obviously there's always more to improve but are you happy tons to improve 
I mean, I mean, happy but not satisfied. Yeah. You know, proud but not satisfied. I mean, when we got there, you got to remember there had been no new standards written in 20 years, no new funding in 30. You could literally sell anything you wanted in school. There was no standards on what you could sell. You could sell candy bars, you could sell literally anything. And, you know, it was a mess. A vegetable have... was a ketchup packet? <laughs> That, that that I think had been eliminated by the time we got there, but but they did it for Pete. Congress intervened on pizza sauce, so like, <laughs> like that kind of vegetable. But you didn't have to serve vegetables, and there was actually a huge one of the most intense fights that we've had to fight. And it's like crazy to think about. Was called offer versus serve. Whether you just had to have a vegetable available if a kid wanted it, or you had to serve it to them. And obviously, like if you serve them, it's on their plate. The consumption rates go up. Yes, there's maybe a bit more waste, which is the argument against it. But you need the kids; they're not going to eat it if it's not on their plate. Right. And so it was like, I'm not going to take it from the back. <laughs> Definitely not. So there's some also powerful pieces in the bill around making basically in the bill, so a community eligibility program, which allowed low-income schools, 40% or more kids who are poor, to serve breakfast in the classroom to every kid. Because the big, big problem we were solving there was at lunchtime, you couldn't tell who was poor or not. Like you couldn't tell who was getting a free lunch or not because everybody's eating together. But breakfast was only for the poor kids. So if you went down for breakfast, that meant you were poor. And so mo so many kids wouldn't go down there just because they didn't want to feel the stigma of being sure. poor. And so by allowing everybody to have it, just transformed attendance, behavior, test scores, or all, all go up when schools implemented this program because kids were getting breakfast. And most, for so many of these kids, school nutrition is like the vast majority, not the entirety of the calories they're going to get for so many kids. And so that part I felt very proud of. You know, I think there was some in the prior administration, you know, some chiseling away at some pieces of it, but nothing, the, the heart and soul of the, of the loss stood. They're going to hopefully do a reauthorization. I mean, if Congress can get anything done don't hold your breath uh, <laughs> in the next year or so, which would be an opportunity to strengthen it. So like the program needs more money, needs to strengthen some of these standards, but, um, but, you know, by and large, I'm proud of the progress that we made. It's far from perfect, but, but it's a lot better than we'll, where we found it. Yeah. It's amazing what you guys did. So as yeah, you good. talked about kind of that accessibility in, in school, I guess it just brings up in my head about, in general, not just for kids, but how do you, what's your take on how we make healthy food more accessible? I don't know, that's all, how much time we got? I mean, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's, it's like one of the harder questions. Right. And I think, I think there's a lot of pieces that go into it. I mean, I think, I think first and foremost, if you like, I'm part of a, a fund called Acre and we're investing in the future, future food around climate change, health and food systems. and a lot of what happens, you know, that we what we end up on our plate is shaped by obviously investments and policies way upstream. And part of the fundamental problem, and people always talk about like, why is a cheeseburger cheaper than a bunch of carrots? Than granola. And yeah, or granola, <laughs> right? Or granola, right? And everybody often takes the very simplistic narrative of like government government subsidies make this food cheaper. It turns out that's just actually fundamentally not true. There's actually like, it's actually completely false. Although people sold a lot of books on that thesis. 
The reality of the situation is that basically for like 60, 70 years, we've poured, including government subsidies, but also like mostly private sector funds, just billions and untold billions and billions of dollars and figuring out how to grow the fundamental inputs in the highly processed food system, namely corn and soy, really efficiently. Now, we externalize a lot of the impact and costs of that system and the environmental degradation, et cetera. But in terms of like bushels of corn and soy, I mean, we have been able to just grow them so cheaply because of the innovations and, and investments in, in efficiency on those two crops. We just have invested statistically an insignificant amount of money, like basically nothing, in how do we grow more nutrient-dense foods, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains in a way that improves their nutrition, improves their flavor, and helps bring the cost down. We just have it. Right. And so would you say that then that's the same truth of factory farming and that's... Same thing. Right. Well, we feed, all we're feeding these cows is corn and soy. The reason steak is cheap is because we feed them corn and soy and the feed, I mean, a steak is just corn and soy transformed into meat by a cow, right? And I mean, a couple that's of antibiotics that they've been fed to... Yeah, that it. they've been fed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so... You know, that's that. So the whole that whole system is is predicated on those two cheap crops. And so if we want um, and you and I have talked a lot about this, like there's a lot of work on oats that could give us even better oat that has even more flavor nutrition and find ways to improve our yields and bring the cost down like that would be a game changer. Can you tell the story on oats, too, after your thought, because it's a super interesting story that you told me about how oats changed. Yeah, I mean, oats oats used to be full of, of of a lot more fat. Turns out omega three fatty acids, which are the ones we want. But we went through a kind of anti fat craze, as we all know. And my dear friend, who I love, truly love, and do incredible work with the American Heart Association, got this one wrong. And that healthy heart check basically was was just focused on amount of fat, and, and back then all fat was the same. And obviously trans fats or saturated fats were not delineated from other healthier fats. And so Quaker and others were not happy because oatmeal wasn't going to get the healthy heart check. And so it worked to basically breed out all that, all those fats from, from the oats. And so there's a huge opportunity. And this is true for the how we bred wheat and how we looked at all kinds of different crops about what we were designing for. And for the most part, it was around production systems or trying to get these sort of claims as opposed to like, how do we improve taste and how do we improve health or, or just yield is, is driven so much of this, but it's not sure. been about eaters or what's good, what's good for eaters. And I think that's how we have to start investing is like, how do we produce a system that meets the needs of eaters and eaters need more nutrient density. That's absolutely delicious at a much cheaper cost. And, and those are the kind of investments that, you know, and companies that I'm trying to build. And I think that's, that's really how you solve it. I think there's other policies, just to go back to the original question about how we do it. I mean, there's other policies, government policies that can help on the research side. And, you know, there's state and local policies around access and affordability and how you help incentivize retailers to serve communities that have been underserved or things of that nature. So there's not one simple answer, but I think most of it's going to have to come from innovation up the supply chain that can get better or universal. Like protein is a huge question. Like how yeah. we're so much money being poured in the space to alternative protein. We have a company called Needy that uh, we've invested in heavily involved in, but they're 
they're developing products that are gonna be very affordable for one four ounce portion that's like 40% of your daily protein, 30% of your daily fiber and super affordable and delicious. And so I think it's like those kind of breakthroughs are gonna have a huge impact on our ability to actually get proper nutrition to, to the people who really need it. That's super exciting. And it feels like probably while really difficult, easier to tackle than it being solely reliant on food policies needed to be changed. Like this is something that we can come up with and have fine solutions to. Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing you realize, so after sitting in the White House, I mean, the kind of irony is for six years running, helping to lead food policy, obviously the government has a big impact on what we eat and those policies really matter. But, you know, for the most part, it's a private sector endeavor. The government doesn't feed that many kids directly or that many humans directly. And so much of what we eat is governed by what's available and our culture and our norms and, you know, what we think is cool and delicious and who we see ourselves to be through the food that we eat. And in the end, like real systemic change is changing the, that value system and, and changing then how we express those values in a, in a much different way with great, great ingredients and great products. The government just doesn't, isn't that well positioned to actually shift and decide what's on our plates. And thank God, like, yeah. I think Michelle had good taste in food, but like the administration after that, like, I, I mean, I'm glad he couldn't tell me what to eat. So it's like, it's a, it cuts both ways, the balance and, and really the change is going to be coming from the private sector. And it's easy to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it wouldn't be very nice and easy if government could just wave a wand and fix everything. And that's why that narrative has got so much traction. But in the reality, it's just not, it's just not the case. And so it's kind of up to us and companies and humans just like yourself who decided like, this isn't good enough. We need, we need something better. And just like literally like carried oats up five flights of stairs in New York to try to like get it going and built a wonderful company that is providing much better nutrition and much better quality products to a lot of people. I mean, then that is the change. I mean, it's just going to take a lot of repetition to purely Elizabeth to, to get the system that we need. Yeah. Well, I think the one silver lining of COVID is certainly this shift from the consumer lens of that mm -hmm. demand really coming there and the awareness. So I think it's all moving in a really exciting direction. I'd love to hear about more of what's exciting you in food and ag and any of your investments. And then also as it relates to climate change, because that's obviously a hot topic of food and climate change. I know We've talked about for us this year, oats had a horrible crop year, 40% less oats. That's just the beginning of yeah. having disruption in food and, and foods going extinct, all of that. So that, let's go yeah. there for a little bit. Yeah. No, look, I think we're, we're entering, we, we've been in an age of stability. If you think about the last hundred years are the most stable from a climate standpoint that scientists can identify in the history of the world, like literally. And we have built a food system and had a population, global population explosion based on the, our ability to produce cheap calories. We built a system that's predicated on a very stable climate. We're basically eating like 12 things, seven crops, five animals globally. And the genetic diversity in those crops is very limited. And we essentially, to use the food analogy, we have all our eggs in basically one basket. And now we're entering an age of intense volatility and we're just not prepared for it 
and we're going to see really devastating disruptions into our global supply chain. We're already seeing it. I mean, imagine forty percent of the old crop. I mean, that's and that we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen anything yet. I mean, think about that. Massive. That's insane. Which is translates massive. to a seventy percent increase of of cost. That's right. And how, how cost. is that right? Right. And so this is the new norm. And so I think what we have to where we're going to have to start pivoting. I mean, obviously, food and agriculture has this kind of multi-dimensional relationship with climate. It's the number two driver of greenhouse gas emissions globally. But unlike energy, you know, where you, there's some real technologies, both from transportation side and, and wind and solar, et cetera, where we can see the curve starting to flatten and with the sight lines to start going down, food and ag is going straight up. And depending on who you ask, we're somewhere 20, 30 years away from food and ag being the number one driver of greenhouse gas emissions. But on the flip side, it's sort of on the front lines of climate and bearing the brunt of, of the impacts of climate. And as we lose sort of our water, when you look at the moisture and water predictions, it's terrifying. Like our aquifers globally are basically tapped out and places that are like in Salinas Valley, et cetera, they're going to, they're predicted to essentially become deserts over the next 40, 50, 100 years, depending on the time horizons or those predictions vary some, but that's definitely what's going. Yeah. And so it's going to be a complicated, scary. difficult, scary future. And we got to, I think right now what we're fighting for and food and my life's work and food is, I think a big part of it is we're fighting to stave off the kind of complete collapse, the complete catastrophe of, from climate as it relates to everything, but certainly food. And if we can bring our footprint down pretty dramatically in the next decade to give us a chance to kind of then get the rest, I think there's going to be some real disruptions that are already baked in. We are well past that point. We're going to, we're going to top 1.5. There's no question, but, and so we're going to have to be able to deal with that. But I think that's what we're fighting for. And then we got to figure out how to build a much more diverse food system that can deal with a lot of the volatility that we're going to be facing. So that, that's what I think the work is. You know, some of the investments in companies and entrepreneurs that I'm working with give me lots of reason to hope, but then you read the science and you're just like, you know, I don't know how it's going to go. And we are falling behind. And even now with all the attention and energy, we're still like nowhere close to making the amount of capital investments and the amount uh, of shifts that we need to to come close to staving off the worst, in my opinion. And so we're running out of time. It's like, and everybody's been saying this and it's, you don't want to sound alarmist, but it's true. And I think hope my things are starting to get bad. Like the world's starting to burn. We're having massive crop failures, all these disruptions, you know, Texas is frozen, there's a tornado or cyclone in Ireland. It's like never had, you know, like things are starting to get crazy, crazy enough. That fire I, in Boulder. That, yeah. Yeah. The fire in Boulder is like, it's just, it's, that was insane. It looked like, complete end times and i have some dear friends who lost their home in boulder and you know hopefully that propels us to much more bold action both in our personal lives as well as in pushing our our representatives and leaders on the local and federal level to to get much more aggressive on trying to tackle this issue like we just we we don't have any just for the sake of our kids like we can't mess around anymore and keep delaying so for someone who's listening and freaking out now of the world is coming <laughs> to an end, not really, but what are a couple of tips that you would say for someone personally to be doing to drink a lot of wine, drown out the sorrows? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, from the food perspective, there's no magic here. Meat, and particularly red meat, is the number one driver of emissions in, in, in food by far. And so reducing the amount of animal protein we're eating is, is really important. And beef is the, by far the number one contributor. Lamb is behind in terms of footprint. Pork, chicken starts to not be as bad in terms of its, 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 its greenhouse gas effect. So even it, so, and that's what I've sort of tried to do. I've mostly cut out beef. I'm a chef and meat eater. So like, I don't think, who knows, life is long, but I can't imagine myself being a vegetarian. Yeah. Although all love to my vegetarian friends and family, <laughs> but trying to move my way down on the, both amounts that I'm eating and the, where I'm eating on that. So the smaller the animal, the better. So chicken, virgin, fish, all better than a steak. So, you know, that's been my approach. And I'd say that's number one. And so just trying to fill your, your plate with less processed. One thing that's generally true is that the things that are tend to be better for us is our health is also better for the planet. It's not one-to-one, but it's pretty close. So trying to eat healthier, simpler foods, trying to cook a little more will lead you to have a more climate-friendly diet. And so I don't think you have to feel like you have to overhaul everything, but eating more beans is probably the other thing. Like beans, I think of our magic food. They're super cheap, absolutely delicious. Couldn't be better for you. They're probably like one of the best things you can eat from a health standpoint and from a climate standpoint, fixes nitrogen in the soil. It's critical to crop rotations. And so I'd say eat more beans as another thing to do. I love it. What about just food waste? Because I know that that's always the top, mm-hmm. like one or two offender yep. as well. I think it being yep. more conscious around around that. Absolutely. So waste, we throw away 40% of weight producing in the United States. I mean, that's just that's insane. Incredible. Can you imagine like pumping oil out of the ground and like Exxon just throwing away 40% of right. what they pump out? I mean, that's essentially what it's we're disturbing. doing. Two, yeah. two out of every five grocery bags, just imagine a country we're throwing in the trash. And 40% of the whole footprint comes from us personally, right? Uh, like in our homes. And I'm like a offender as much. Yeah. And I'm a United Nations 12.3, which is the food waste one of the global goals champion. Like I'm like all in this world <laughs> and it's hard, but it's something that we have to do a better job at. It's a, it's a huge driver of, it, of greenhouse gas emissions because all that food goes to landfill. And so, yeah, I think there's a couple pieces. One is in our homes, like coming up with a plan for the week is really helpful in reducing waste. Cause right now we're just walking to the store. We're picking stuff as we go. We'll figure out later. But the end is like, we put those vegetables in the bottom drawer. We kind of forget about them. They kind of get wilty. You're like you look at it on like Thursday or Wednesday. You're like, ah, oh, it's not looking so good. You close it and just sort of hope that it gets better, but you're not. And then by <laughs> Friday, you're just like, oh, that shit looks terrible. And you throw it away. We all do that. First of all, don't put it in the bottom drawer. That's where food goes to die. Keep it at eye level. Number one in your fridge but also have a plan. So I would just try to sketch out your week's menu and buy what you need. And, and, and that I think is, I found to be very, very helpful. But so both put it where I can have a plan and then put it where I can see it as one. Two, look, I think companies are starting to really take this on. So a company that I've been helping to build for six years now called Do Good Foods, the first product, Do Good Chicken. We're opening a huge processing facility where we collect 160 tons of food waste per day from retailers or throwing it away and then process it into feed. So we're feeding chickens, like human grade, super high quality feed. So each chicken that we have will amount to four pounds of food waste 
saved or food saved from going to landfill and three pounds reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and so just by eating that, yeah, so just by eating this chicken, you're having a really positive impact on this issue. And so I think it's a very empowering, it's just chicken. Nobody's asking you to eat anything different or change your life. Just eat this chicken and you can become part can of the Can they take any food waste or does it have to be a specific? We can, we can take <laughs> most. Can you take some not... granola scraps? I can take granola scraps for okay. sure. I'm sure like, they probably would want, they probably wouldn't want that blended. They'd, birds probably would just want that straight. They're like, give me that pure, <laughs> pure Elizabeth. <laughs> so um, we're, we're launching that. That's amazing. The, the, those products will be in, in some markets starting the spring and we'll be expanding nationwide. Super proud and excited about that. And I think there's going to be more and more companies that are looking to find ways to upcycle these. I mean, it's only food waste once it lands in the, in the, in the landfill. It's, it's right. super high quality. It's food we would be eating. You know, totally. it's like in some, you know, and we work very hard to help make sure all of it's getting donated that can, but you know, so much of it is still going to landfill and you look at it, it's like, God, this is devastating. So better get it back into the food system and get it to help nourish ourselves. But we got to find ways to, to reduce that as well. I love that. Well, when you were talking about creating a menu and it made me think about during the beginning of COVID. I every night thought it was like a top chef challenge that I, I didn't <laughs> want to throw away or lose yeah. anything. And so I would get super creative by being like, okay, here's the three things that are left in my fridge. How do I make something of it? And I don't want to waste anything. So I think it's a fun challenge you can play with yourself of yeah. trying to eliminate that waste each week. Yeah, totally. And look, it's money. I mean, we were throwing away thousands of the average family. Yeah. So that includes like low-income families. So the so the number for most of us is higher. The average family is throwing away thousands of dollars a year in food. I mean, it's just cash in your pocket. It's just like silly. I mean, it's like a vacation. We're throwing away like a vacation, <laughs> you know, food every year. So think about it like that. Save that food, eat that food, save that money, and then you know, take a trip. Love it. How's that for a how's that for a slogan? <laughs> Sounds like a quote for the podcast today. All right, we're going to move on to some rapid fire Q&A. Okay, the cool. best advice you've gotten over the last six months? Be really honest with yourself about what you need and, and don't be afraid to go with it, even if it's not what others think you should do. That's always a good one. Your superpower. My superpower? I don't know. Do I have a superpower? Everyone I think my superpower, superpower, I would say my passion and my sort of sense of humans. Favorite cookbook, not your own, in addition to your own. <laughs> what was that? You didn't give me an opportunity <laughs> to plug my book. It's called it, Eat a Little Better. Favorite recipe uh, out of Eat a Little Better? Oh, uh, I can't. It's like my children. I can't pick my I favorite. Know. I don't use a lot of cookbooks, obviously, but I mean, I think Odalenge's cookbooks are pretty, pretty special. And I, and I think he has found just like he's tapped into the perfect blend of like simplicity and but creativity and deliciousness in a way that's really accessible to people. But it feels like they're even for me, sometimes steps up my dish. I probably have looked over the years to look at that, use things in that, those books by more than any other one. Well, it's funny because I'm a big Pinterest user. I don't know if you are, but I, my two pins for things I wanted to make this weekend were your sweet potatoes 
and nice. his like cauliflower steak something or other that had there some caper salsa. So perfect marriage right there. Love it. <laughs> Three random things that you're currently loving. Could be podcasts, TV, product, anything that you're loving. Um, watching Ozark. Love that. So good. Three random things. Rosé. And Sumoto oranges. Ooh. I'm eating a lot of them right now. Yep. Don't ask me why. All right. What do you want more of in your life? Rest. Sleep. And you massage. Your whoop. <laughs> I do. What do you want less of? What do I want less of? I don't know. My life's pretty good. I can't really complain. I mean, I look forward to, I mean, I would say work, but I love what I do. So I don't actually want less work. I mean, I probably want more time, you know? Yeah. I want to tune down my work, but, you know, more time to just be out in the world and travel. And I definitely want more travel, I guess I'd say. Out in the world travel, not just work travel. That one I'd take more to. Absolutely. I'm really more guy, not less guy. I like it. What's a meal that you'll never forget? And this is a two-part question. So a meal you'll never forget that you made and then a meal that you'll never forget that you ate. I got a lot of meals that I won't forget. The one that comes to mind was only because I was talking about last night was the meal I cooked for Oprah at, just after Brock won in Chicago. That was pretty memorable. What'd you make? It was a multi-course thing. I kind of, I showed off for the first time and Brock had never seen me like cook like that. And so he was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Uh, <laughs> I've had so many memorable meals. Probably the thing I'd say is the best thing I tasted. That's hard to say. But one of the most memorable things was I was traveling Vietnam, just like back old school, broke, broke travel and had a bowl of noodles on a little plastic stool, literally sitting in a street that this woman had made on this. She grilled the pork and made the whole thing in this little stand. And it was like bliss. It was the most delicious. Mm -hmm. one, maybe the most, not one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted. And it was just like, I'm literally seeing the streets, chaos all around me, people, cars, scooters racing by. It was just like everything. So that, that one stands out. But I got a long list of great, great meals for sure. Oh, you're making me want to travel. Lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? You mean like, what do I not sacrifice ever? Yeah. To feel your best. Besides wine. Well, it could be wine. Here. Wine is definitely part of it. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's like good food is, I can't, I don't do well when I eat it. I love like some chicken, like some buffalo wings or something once in a while, right? But like, I can't eat poorly. If I go a day and just have really crappy food like that, I start to get quite unsettled. The thing that I used to would have loved to say is like working out, although through COVID I've not, I've completely fallen off. So I intend to really get back into it. Of course, like we're all saying to ourselves and not somehow become the guy who like says he's going to it isn't. I've worked out my whole life every day, my whole life, but that's gonna have to change. So that one is what I would add, I guess, back back into the mix. Awesome. Well, Sam, in closing, anything that we haven't touched on? What's next for you? What are you excited about in the year ahead? 
Well, I'm excited to like get back out in the world and hopefully we get past, you know, this really difficult time for all of us and get some sense of normalcy back or whatever our new normal is. I'm excited to keep trying to build companies who are solving some of the biggest problems we face and support entrepreneurs like yourself who have, you know, built incredible companies and keep pushing on policy and just see, you know, make sure that we can tell our kids that when it counted, we were working hard to try to try to make things better for them because right now I fear around what I can tell them as they you know merge into this world that is far worse than where we found it as adults so I just encourage everybody to find the little little bits and pieces they can do at home in their office or jobs or work communities every little thing adds up to shifting our culture and shifting our country and how we how we work on these things so every bit every bit matters so we're all and we're all we're all in this one together there's no no dividing lines. There's no there's no getting out of this where we have a collective responsibility and opportunity to do something really powerful. And so that's what I'm excited about trying to keep fostering over the next year and beyond. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for everything that you do. And you're so inspiring. Thanks for being here. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me and look forward to coming out and uh, eating some granola with you soon. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.